Well, good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. It's so good to see you here this morning. It's been a good uh, weekend of ministry. Our students have had an event called uh, Venture Weekend, uh, which is uh, basically, if you've seen the show Amazing Race, uh, they got into a bunch of cars on teams and went across the city, uh, kind of racing around, a big scavenger hunt, and I heard it was a lot of fun. And I heard Daniel Butler was in charge of the last stop, which if you know Daniel Butler, I think that challenge probably gave a Survivor a run for its money. I heard it was pretty intense, uh, but I'm glad everybody got back safely. And, and here's what I want to say. Uh, our student ministry, I appreciate Brandon and Emily. I appreciate their leadership. And uh, we have a student ministry that's not just incredibly serious uh, about discipling students and pouring truth into them and uh, preaching and teaching the gospel teaching teenagers how to apply gospel truth to their life, uh, but they also know how to have a lot of fun. So if you are not plugged in or you have a, a student, uh, know a student who's not plugged in our student ministry, get them plugged in, they'll be blessed. Uh, but we've had a good weekend. Uh, so we're going to begin a series this morning uh, called Embracing the Vision. It's a three-week series. It's a really important series uh, that we're going to come back to. It's going to be full of things, some of the things that you've heard before and some things that we're going to come back to over and over and over again because we're going to be covering uh, why we exist as a church. All right, In this series, series I'm asking uh, you to, to embrace the vision that God's given us here at Schindler Drive uh, Baptist Church. And we're going to look at that over the next three weeks, uh, including today. Uh, but really the big picture of what I'm asking you to do is to embrace God's vision, uh, God's vision for your life. God's vision for our church, right? We're going to talk about what we feel like His vision is and mission is for our church, Schindler Drive Baptist Church. But really, it's embracing His mission, His vision, right? His direction for our church and for our lives. See, we need to remember this. God has already given the church a mission. He's already given the church vision. He's already given the church marching orders and instructions as to how we're to view and to move into the future. What our job is, is to, as disciples, individual disciples, and as a community of believers, to regularly make sure that we are in alignment with his heart for the church and for our lives. Now, do I believe that God calls each church in a unique way to have a mission and a vision uh, for that particular church? I do, because churches, for example, like ours, are in a different context than someone might be in in a different part of the country. We're, uh, we're a group of believers that are each unique with uh, different uh, kinds of spiritual gifts, right, who have come together. And we are placed in a community where a sin and brokenness has manifested itself in particular ways. And God's put us here to meet those names, to meet those needs in the name of Jesus. Jesus to point people to the gospel. But we need to remember this, the end goal, no matter what church you're in, the end goal has always been the same for any church that's ever in existence this side of the second coming of Christ. And it's this, that we be a body of believers committed to growing as disciples and to making disciples for the glory of Christ. Church, this is why we exist, all right, to make disciples. That is why God has placed us right here at the corner hips and Schindler Drive. We're not here to make good church attenders. We're not here to just make Sunday school attenders. Those are good things. We can list off a lot of good things that people could be doing. We're not here just to, uh, you know, have a church full of people who are serving in different ways. Those are important things, but you can do all of those things and not be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. We're called to share the gospel, and to make disciples. Disciples who have been born again, filled with the Spirit, are being transformed by the Spirit, by the power of the gospel from the inside out. 
uh, to, to make disciples and to develop disciples who are applying gospel truths to every area of their life, to their marriage, to their parenting, to their relationships, to their attitude, to their jobs, every aspect and who they themselves are seeking to make disciples who are disciple-making disciples. All right, God's heart and mission for the church is quite simple. It's to grow as disciples and to intentionally seek to make disciples. And I believe as we, and if we, stay committed to that, I believe something special can happen in and through this church. I believe it is happening. But I firmly believe that if this will be the case, and if we will put, as we'll say this morning, our yes on the table, that our best days as a church can be before us and not behind us. I believe that. And I look forward to laying this out over the next uh, few weeks. Uh, but here's the thing, because maybe you're like, well, let's go. Let's hear it. Let's hear, let's hear the mission statement. Let's hear the values. And let's hear the, the, the strategy, right? Uh, but before, I want you to know this, before you can embrace and own God's purpose and mission for the church, before you can do that, you can't do that without knowing the God of the mission. You can't embrace God's mission for the church and for your life without first knowing the God of the mission. So before we can dream and kind of see what God wants to do through us, we must see God clearly, all right? We've got to make sure our eyes this morning are on the Lord of the mission before we even talk about what the mission is, all right? So maybe it's, for some of us this morning, maybe it's going to kind of be like you kind of taking glasses off and cleaning off some dust, you're a believer, and seeing Jesus more clearly. Maybe for some of you, it's like, you know, if you've been in a 3D movie, and when I was little, I remember being in 3D movies when I was real small. Um, it wasn't too long ago, so don't be too hard on me. But I remember being in, in, in theater, 3D movies when I was real little, and something scary would happen, and I'd take the 3D glasses off, right? And it'd make it less scary, because it's blurry, and you can't tell what's going on. But a 3D movie really isn't all that fun to watch without the glasses on. You've got to put them on, and you gain clarity. And so maybe for some of you, you, you have wandered from the mission so much... And the reason is, is because, listen, you have wandered from a clear vision of who your Savior is. And so for you, it's putting the 3D glasses back on. Hey, and then for some of you, if you don't know Christ this morning, it's about you just receiving new sight. So this morning, what we're going to do, wherever you are, is we're going to see how we have to have a biblical vision of Christ in order to pursue a biblical vision that He has for our church, and for our lives. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read about a prophet. It's a perfect place for us to go this morning because we read about a prophet who gets a clear vision of the Lord. And man, it radically, this vision of the Lord radically shapes his life and his ministry for the rest of his life. All right, so let's look at Isaiah's experience and see how it might impact ours. Stand with your Bibles open. I'm going to begin to read in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Would you have a seat as I pray? Lord, I pray a simple prayer this morning. 
Lord, that our minds and our hearts would be so overwhelmed with the vision of who you are that it changes forever. Changes forever as individual disciples. It would change us forever as a church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the opening line of this uh, part of Isaiah gives us some, some context kind of into what, uh, kind of a little bit about what's going on right here. It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death. All right, King Uzziah's death. All right, so uh, just a little bit of Old Testament history right here. After King Solomon's son died, uh, the kingdom split. All right, split uh, 10 tribes. There was 12 total tribes, 10 tribes uh, went and made up uh, what we see in the Old Testament called Israel for a long period of time and uh, the southern kingdom called Judah, which was made up of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And in the region of Judah in the 8th century BC, uh, a king reigned by the name of Uzziah. All right, Uzziah reigned for several decades. And Second Chronicles 26 tells us a pretty amazing story about his life. Uh, he was 16 years old when he took the throne in charge of an entire nation, all right? That's a little scary to think about a 16-year-old being in charge of an entire uh, uh, country. I, I'm nervous about 16-year-olds being in charge of vehicles, right? To be, to be a 16-year-old uh, in charge of an entire country, right? To, like maybe the, the formal uh, communication would be done through Snapchat, right? The uh, State of the Union address uh, communicated through a series of TikTok videos, right? Probably having Justin Bieber rewrite the national anthem, right? I didn't care how that would go over this morning. That was funny to me, so I thought I would say that. I was determined. I knew it probably wouldn't get a lot of laughs, but it made me laugh too much, maybe. Surprisingly, King Uzziah, 16 years old, really was a great king right out of the gate. I mean, he was a great military leader, had a lot of military a success. Uh, you see, if you follow his story in Chronicles, a lot of innovation, like in the way that he did and approached military, approached battle. Uh, but along the way, something got in his way that often would take great leaders down in the Bible, and it was his pride. He got proud. And he began to try to get, he got outside the bounds of Scripture, and he tried to assume not only the office of king, but the office of priest, and tried to perform priestly tasks. And because that was a no-no, that was not good, that was something the law of God forbid, uh, he was not taking the holiness of God seriously, and he got struck with a disease. He got struck with leprosy, died in isolation. His life ends in a pretty tragic way, but it was also foreshadowing of the judgment that would fall on the greater part of the nation because of sin in the camp all over the place. And so it's at this time, a very difficult time, a dark time, a rebellious time in the nation, as the mighty king Uzziah has died and the people are running from God, that's when Isaiah says here he had a vision from the Lord. In other words, and what this is ha what's happening here is we see in Isaiah 6, this being a part of Scripture, what this is is this is a reminder that, yes, your king is dead, but the king is alive and on his throne. Your leader has failed, but there is a leader who is on his throne, who is high and lifted up, and his work on this earth is not done. That's what we're reminded of here, right, as this opens up. He's going to carry out his work on this planet through willing instruments, through willing vessels, and Isaiah is who he's choosing to work through. And Isaiah, just if you read his story, if you read the book of Isaiah, God accomplished mighty things through the life of Isaiah for his glory. There's, not, uh, there's more Messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah than in any book in the Old Testament. Right? Some scholars would tell you that there are over 400 echoes of Isaiah in the New Testament. That Jesus quotes 
himself, the, the prophet Isaiah. He was a man with a nature like yours and like mine, but God used him in mighty ways. What happened? Well, a key moment that would shape and direct his entire life and his entire ministry. We're called to, to lead and to, to, to do ministry, to do the ministry of the Lord. And we look back and see the key thing that shaped Isaiah's ministry was this moment that he has this vision of the Lord that left him with no other option than to say yes. My yes is on the table. Here I am. Send me. So there's two things we need to learn and apply from Isaiah's vision if we're going to be people who put our yes on the table for how God wants to use us. I'm going to spend like 85% of our time on the first point and a shorter amount of time on the second point just so you can prepare. Point number one, we need a real vision of God that radically shapes our life. We need a real vision of God that radically shapes our life. That's what happens to Isaiah. Notice a few things about his vision. First of all, it says there, I I saw the Lord. So number one, he sees the Lord. I saw the Lord on a throne high and lifted up. So he sees, so the rest of the world kind of fades away. His own, in his own mind, his own greatness and his view of himself all fades away in light of how great this king is. He sees the Lord. He gets a pure vision of who the Lord is in this moment. He just gets a glimpse and he sees the Lord in his sovereignty, in his authority, in his power. It says he sees the train of his robe filling the temple, right? The temple was not a small place. And so it's filled with layer upon layer upon layer of this endless train of a royal robe. What does this do? And it's pointing to his majesty. It's pointing to his splendor. It's pointing to his glory. It's pointing to his his matchless power and authority. In other words... Isaiah's realizing life's not about me. It's all about this one that I'm seeing right here. He's the star of the story. He's the king. There's no one that matches up to his grandeur. There's no one who matches up to his power. This is a bigger picture than often we can have in church of Jesus. This is a bigger picture of Jesus gentle holding a little lamb and kind of just there to kind of give good hugs with a Colgate smile that we kind of take off of a flannel graph board from a Sunday school lesson we had earlier in life. He's a Lord. He's the Lord of power and authority and majesty and sovereignty and also of holiness. Verse 2, it describes these creatures called seraphim. These, we're not sure exactly what these are, but we're pretty sure these are, these are like these fierce, fiery, think Lord of the Rings-esque beings. Fierce, scary, a lot of authority, a lot of, a pow- a lot of power. They have six wings, and what are they doing with those wings in the presence of this king on this throne? It says with four of them, they're using to hide themselves. Right? It's a picture of humility before God. You know, some may look at this and say, well, this is just kind of taken from ancient mythology and other cultures where they would often have, you know, in the, 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 their, their depictions of gods, these big fiery creatures that are guarding. No, this is different because these creatures aren't here to guard anyone. The Lord who is on His throne right here is not needing to be guarded by anyone. These fiery creatures, these powerful warrior-like creatures are here to worship, are here to declare something about this king. And what do they declare? They're encircling the throne, worshiping Him, declaring something over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. All right, that's repeated three times. It's very unique in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Holy, holy, holy. Right? When something's repeated twice in Scripture, it's called a superlative. 
Right? When you see in the New Testament, for like example, Matthew 7, when it says, Lord, Lord, many will say, Lord, Lord. That's emphatic. That's like an exclamation point. When you see something mentioned three times in Hebrew literature like this, this is called a super superlative. This means this is really, 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 really important. And why such an emphasis on the holiness of God? Why such an emphasis on his, this attribute, his holiness? Because Isaiah, through this image, the God's word wants to make sure it's crystal clear that he is distinct, distinctly separate from us. He is completely other. Notice the creatures are declaring he is holy. He's not trying to be holy. He's not becoming holy progressively. He's not working up to it. He just is holy. It emanates from his being. And it's an attribute that touches every other attribute that is attached to him. He's holy in his power. He's holy in his authority. He's holy in his justice. He's holy in his love. And the creatures say the whole earth is full of his glory. This refers to how God shows his glory through all of creation. He sees God in his power. It says the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. So just the voice of the Lord is shaking the foundation of the temple. It's shaking the entire structure. Okay, so big picture. In other words, this isn't grandpa in the sky. This isn't the man upstairs. This isn't kind of a buddy kind of view of God where he's there and he's kind of watching over us but kind of disconnected. Nothing about Isaiah's vision matches any of those titles, right? This is someone Isaiah is undone in the presence of. You say, well, I see where this is going and I see what his response was. If I had an experience with the Lord like this, I'd probably respond in the same way, right? Of course he responds the way that he does. Look at it. You know, I haven't experienced this. Listen, while we may not have this exact experience, never forget you live on this side of Christmas. See, in John 12, 41, John helps us understand that who Isaiah saw in this vision was Jesus himself. This is the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. See, this is the pre-incarnate Christ in all of his glory. See, maybe we haven't seen Jesus in this way, but we have been given an even more glorious vision of Jesus in Scripture. We have something that Isaiah didn't have. We have a fuller revelation of God and a fuller depiction of who Jesus is in the New Testament, in the revelation of God that he's given us. We have the testimonies, the eyewitnesses, the eyewitness accounts that this high and exalted king that Isaiah saw that caused him to become undone, left his throne, took on flesh, died in our place, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he continues to rule in that same place of power and authority where Isaiah saw him. So, how do you view the Lord this morning? Really, how, how do you view God this morning. Do you have a puny view of God or do you have a view of God that's powerful enough to shape your life? To change you? Isaiah's vision of the Lord began to shape everything in his life, starting first, and this is where it's got to begin, with how he viewed himself. You can't view God in his power like this and it not impact the way that you, you view yourself. In light of how holy God is, you have to come to terms with how sinful you are. And he does. Verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. He's literally calling down a curse on himself, right? That word woe, we don't use that today, right? You're like, yeah, dude, whoa, whoa, watch out. No, woe, W-O-E. It's this ancient way of calling a curse down on yourself. What's happening? Tim Keller, the author, says this about this text. He says, For many, God is a concept, not a reality. As a concept, you're bigger than God. He has to fit into you. 
When you understand that He's a reality, when you understand who He is, you see that He is in fact infinitely bigger and weightier than you are. Infinitely more glorious than every single one of us. And when we truly see God, when we see Him in His holiness and His power and His splendor, His glory, listen, it gives us a new perspective about ourselves in a terrifying way. Hence His words, Woe is me. He's calling a curse down on himself in the presence of a holy God. He sees this sin. He's saying, I'm dead. I'm done. I'm lost. I'm wrecked. I've got no hope. So here's what we need to learn right here is when people, and this is good as you think about disciple making, right? When people fully grasp the greatness of this king, when people fully grasp the greatness and the power of this God, who this God is and who we are in light of this God, the natural instinct is not for Him to become your buddy. For Him to immediately become your pal. To see Him in, in the vision of who He is through the pages of Scripture is to be terrified. See, when you really encounter God, it humbles you and it begins to shape everything about your life beginning with you and your view of your life and your own sin. And you believe, you, don't, you, you begin to understand you don't belong at the center of the universe. You don't belong at the center of your life. Notice how his view of God impacted his self. But that, his self's not the only thing that's, gonna, that's being impacted right here. It impacts the way he views other people. Look at verse 5. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It, it changes the way he sees his community, right? He, he doesn't just see his own brokenness. He sees that he's not the only broken one around. He sees everybody else is broken like he is. Everybody else is in need of a Savior as he is. And the same should be true for us. We are in a community that needs Christ. We are in a community that is broken. Isaiah doesn't see himself better as anybody else. He doesn't, wow, look at God in his splendor and his glory and his holiness. Oh man, this terrible place that I live in. Look at this wicked place that I live in, you know. No, first of all, he sees his own brokenness. And then as he sees his own brokenness, his eyes open. Say, hey, everybody else around me is broken just like me. Everybody else around me is in need of a Savior just like me. Hey, have you seen Jesus? Have you come to terms with your brokenness? Have you realized how desperate you were and hopeless you were? And did Jesus save you? Did you realize you needed a Savior and then experience salvation? Listen, your, now, your new heart's desire and your new heart's uh, focus should now be on looking around and seeing other people who are just like you were. Broken. In need of a Savior. How do you view your neighbors? How do you view, when you ride down the road, how do you view people in this city? How do you view real people? People made in the image of God, but who are broken in the grocery store as you walk by. How do you view people in your neighborhood? How do you view people who don't go to church? How do you view people who don't value the same things that you value? People who, how do you view people who don't give a rip about what you're doing this morning? How do you view people who don't give a rip about God and worshiping God and making disciples? who don't give a rip about your values or your politics, here's the question, do you think you're better than them? See, when Isaiah is humbled in the presence of who God is, he doesn't think he's better than anybody else. He sees himself as broken in the same boat as everybody else in humanity. We need a fresh view of Jesus this morning. 
Help us think straight. Do you see that? To never stop seeing ourselves, listen, as a sinner saved by the grace of God. And everybody else around me, whoever I run into in this community and in this world, as people who are broken in need of the same Savior that I have met. Let me ask it to you like this, and I've asked you this before. Are you more turned off by the sinful shenanigans and positions and decisions and lifestyles of the lost more than you are turned on by their potential salvation? Because if we got a clear vision of God, listen, you will keep seeing that both of you need Jesus. And apart from the grace of God, both of you would be in the same boat of brokenness headed for hell with no hope. Changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see others. Now, if the story ended there with everybody broken, it would be a terrible story. It would be a hopeless story. Right? Everybody's broken. Woe is me. Everybody's messed up. The end book closed. Good luck, everybody. We'll see you next week. That'd be a depressing place to end. Right? But we learned something else here about the character of God, not just about His holiness, but also about His character that we learned a little bit about last week, the, the hesed of God. The unmerited, unconditional, unearned love of God. He experiences this. He experiences God's grace. God's grace that even in a deeper way changes and shapes his view of God and himself and other people. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah didn't just experience the holiness and the greatness and the power of God. He also experienced the grace of God. The symbolism right here in this vision is pointing right here to, this, to the gospel in the same way that the whole Old Testament points to the gospel in the same way. So you got Isaiah right here representing everybody here, representing sinners, broken, woe is me people. Right Apart from Christ, we're woe is me people. If you don't know Christ this morning, you're a woe is me person. Same place I was before I met Christ. You got the burning coal right here, which is coming from a what? Coming from an altar in the Old Testament. What was placed on altars, right? Sacrifices. So what we see in this vision is what we see the whole Old Testament doing is pointing us to the truth that it's going to be through a sacrifice that God's going to ultimately fix our sin problem. Not through an animal sacrifice, that's a temporary atonement, but through a perfect, blameless, righteous human sacrifice who would fully atone for the sins of mankind. And Isaiah knew that one day that this king, who he got a vision of, would step off of that throne and literally do... What that sacrificial system pointed to and what in this vision, this burning coal on his lips was symbolizing. You say, well, you mean like he knew that Jesus was going to come, this Jesus was going to step off the throne and was going to come and, and pay for our sins and raise from the dead? I do believe that. You say, well, how do I know that? Because 50 chapters later, he writes about it. Surely he has borne our griefs, he says in Isaiah 53, and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, the, the whole scene in Isaiah chapter 6, the whole scene of the Old Testament, of the sacrificial system, all of it points to Christ. Jesus is the star of the story. All of it points to the day that this one that Isaiah sees sitting on the throne in authority would step off of that throne, would leave his throne where he was high and lifted up to be high and lifted up on a cross. 
would lay down that, 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 that robe that filled that temple, that royal robe, and trade it out for a robe that would be thrown in mockery at the foot of the cross and torn and gambled over by some soldiers who were crucifying him. But this king came down out of glory and stepped into our mess to die on the cross for our sins. Listen, not for it to be a symbolic representation of our sins being atoned for, but a historic moment where our sins were fully atoned for. And maybe you're wondering, what do I do to experience that? So you're saying this coal on his lips and the Old Testament points to Jesus, this king coming down and dying in our place and conquering the grave we couldn't conquer so that he could atone for our sins and forgive us of our sins and bring us into his family. How do I get that? You got brokenness in your life this morning? Is your life full of sin and brokenness and rebellion? Are you running from God and you wonder, could God forgive somebody like me? Yes, he can. You say, well, how can I experience that? What do I do? What did Isaiah do? Again, remember, this is pointing to the gospel. What did Isaiah do to receive the atonement in this moment? Nothing. He just stood there as the seraphim came and touched the coal to his lips. And so it is with us. You can't earn salvation. You can't work for salvation. You simply receive it. I was at home with my kids. And by the way, I'm going to share a Mac story. And this will possibly be the last Mac story I ever share like this. As my kids get older, I don't share as much stories like this. So don't be telling Max that I told this story, all right? But I was at home with my kids. Rebecca, my wife, was not in the house. That should be some foreshadowing of where the story's going. And Max, my seven-year-old, was not in sight and that's not always a good thing. And so things were more quiet than they should have been. So I began to make my way through the house and overheard some noise coming from the restroom. Door was closed, some banging around, and I heard some water running from the sink. And so I felt like I needed to go in and check out what was going on. And so I, I opened the door, and Max turns around into my horror. He turns around, and he's got silly putty, this big glob of silly putty that has somehow got embedded into his eyeballs to the point where he can't even open up his eyes. The, the silly putty had, it, it was fused. It's some, maybe he got it from his sister. I don't know, but it had glitter in it, right? So he's got this, this glittery silly putty in his eyes. He can't see. It was sad, but also kind of funny. I feel bad saying that to see him. He's just struggling looking at me. And he turns around and, and it's crusted. And his eyes are stuck together. It's all in his eyelashes. I'm like, this ain't good. So he turns around and he's, and he's, and he's like, he blinded himself and he turns around and he knows it's me. And he goes, dad, dad, I'm sorry. He goes, I can fix it. And he like starts trying to shut the door. I'm like, no. He just said, daddy, I, I can fix it. I promise. I'm sorry. He goes, I can fix it. I said, no, but he, he kept talking over me. I can fix it. I can do it. And he kept trying to rub it out of his eyes. Right. And I got down next to him. I said, no, bro, I'm for you right now. Listen, when your mom comes home, you're not the only one that's going to get in trouble. <laughs> He said, no, daddy, let me fix it. I can fix it. And I said, no. And I literally held him there and said, stop. Let me take care of it. You can't fix it. And it took a long time. And as time went by, it was very clear. He could not have fixed that on his own. Praise the Lord, we got that out of his eye before his mama got home. I, I was able to clean it out of his eyes. And I began to think of, of, of our sin and I think some of you this morning, if you're somebody who needs new sight, if you're somebody who is lost, somebody who needs 
a relationship with God, you can, we can be a lot like Max. Just give me some time, I can fix it. Give me some time, I can pull myself up by the bootstraps. Give me some time with enough programs, with enough work, with enough I- I- external exercises. I can, at some point, I believe, make myself, you know, acceptable on the side of God. And yet the Bible shows us over, this is the gospel over and over and over and again, the works of your hands are not good enough. Your only hope, like Isaiah, is to put down your hands and to drop to your knees and say, God, woe is me. And to let him do the work that only he can do. Your job is to only bring what you bring to the table, which is your sinfulness and your need for a Savior, and to throw the full weight of your faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when that happens, for some of you it may happen this morning, for some of you it has happened already. When that happens, you get a life-shaping vision of the Lord for your life like Isaiah got. See, what happens is you don't just see God as powerful and as sovereign and as majestic and as all of His grandeur. You see Him in His grace. You see Him as a good, benevolent God, which makes Him all the more glorious. And when you see Him that way, it demands your all. It makes you respond like Isaiah, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. told you a lot of time on that first point. Here's simply the second point. We don't only need a life-shaping vision for our life. We need a response to God that can only be summarized in one word, and it's surrender. We need to respond to God with a surrendered life. When Isaiah sees who Jesus is, he puts his yes on the table. And our response should be, of course he does, and of course ours should be. If he is this good... If he is this powerful and this sovereign and at the same time this good and if he loves me this much, how can my response be anything other than surrender and putting my yes on the table? How do you say no to a Lord who you know is on one hand so majestic and so great and so powerful that it puts you on your face in his presence because you understand how unworthy you are in his presence and yet at the same time he's the Lord who chooses to forgive you so much? who brought you into a relationship with Himself, who washed your sin-stained soul white as snow, who when you were more sick than, in sin than you could ever imagine, He chose to love you more than you could ever dare hope. How can we look at a God and get a clear vision of Him like that and then say, when it comes to Him asking us to do what He's asked us to do with our life, and now nah, I'm good. I'm good little blip of time I got on this earth, I'm going to spend it the way I want to spend it. No. Like Isaiah, our only response is yes. Isaiah doesn't even wait to hear what his instructions are. He's like that little kid in class that raises his hand before you enters, the question's done. He says, yes, here I am. Wait, Isaiah, well, wait, I don't care what it is. I, I, I've seen you. I know who you are. I trust you. I'm in. Hey, does that describe your life? Does God have a blank check with your life? Are you so overwhelmed with the vision and the, and the gospel, the, the vision of Christ and in His gospel that, that you've given a yes even before you, you know where He's taking you? Is your yes on the table? Maybe you need to apply that in like a personal part of your life. Maybe you need to apply that in your attitude or your marriage or your parenting, your finances. Where are you maybe withholding a yes this morning? Where are you basically saying, God, I will obey you and follow you here if... 
Yeah, Isaiah, the if's not on the table, it's just the yes. If you have areas in your life where you're unsurrendered while at the same time you do not claim to be unforgiven, that's unacceptable. Let me slow that down and say it again. If in your life, you have areas of your life that you are unsurrendered while at the same time you do not claim to be unforgiven, that is always unacceptable. It's an abuse of His grace. And so I'm asking you in your life to put the yes on the table. If you've seen Christ, to put the yes on the table. But corporately, I'm asking us, as we move forward and think about the mission God's called us to as a church, the purpose He has for us as a church, to have this kind of surrendered heart. If you're a member of this church this morning, I'm talking, I'm really talking directly to you. If you're not a member of our church, come discover Schindler tonight and become a member. We'd love to have you. God has given every local church a mission. What is that mission? To make disciples. And when it comes to that mission that He's given us for our lives and as a church, I guess what I'm asking you this morning, maybe for the first time ever, maybe for another time in a fresh way, will you put your yes on the table? Will you commit us together as a community of believers to once again, hey, we want to be a church on mission. You go, well, what mission? Hey, we're going to lay, lay out, again, our mission statement and our values and our strategy over the next two weeks. But know this, any mission for a church is always rooted in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. It's a clear mission. It's a simple mission. And yet we're so prone to wander from it. Those are our instructions. It requires, hey, it requires going. It requires baptism. It requires incorporating people into the community of faith. It, it requires relationships. It requires teaching people to obey Scripture. It, it involves showing people what it looks like to conform to the image of Christ, teaching them to reach people and to disciple those people to be disciple-making disciples themselves. And we're called to be fully committed to that mission. God has placed this church right here on the west side of Jacksonville and on the edge of Clay County to be committed to that mission. That is why we exist as a church. Will you put your yes on the table and be committed to that mission? The way we're going to say it, and again, we're going to unpack this over the next couple of weeks, but the way we're going to say it around here, and again, this is rooted in the Great Commission, is, is this way, and you can put up the next slide. The way we're going to say it is we're going to be a people moving forward who are committed to following Christ, all right? Following Christ, that first phrase, that's the idea of growing as disciples and engaging, that's the evangelism side of this. Everyday people, these are all people, the whosoever's in our community and to the ends of the earth, we have the honor of engaging with and pointing to Jesus. With the gospel, that's the message that we take, that's the message that changes people. To be fully restored not only we believe the gospel will restore people, most importantly in the relationship with God, but out of the overflow of that, their, their relationships with people will be restored. The gospel is applied to other areas of their life. We'll experience restoration in their marriage and in all the different areas of their life. And to be satisfied in Him because we believe that the gospel is what makes us treasure Christ and delight Him, delight in Him. 
And he is the only one who truly satisfies in a world full of idols that will promise they can do that but never deliver on it. That's our statement. Following Christ and engaging everyday people with the gospel to be fully restored and satisfied in him. The next slide is going to show you the values that we believe we're going to need to hold on to tightly to make sure we stay focused on that mission and headed in that direction. So we're going to be a people who hold to clear biblical teaching, who value sincere prayer, genuine love for all people, real biblical community, authentic multi-generational worship, faithful generosity, committed family partnership. Those are our values. And the way that we, we got our mission, we got our values that help us stay on mission, but the way we keep all of this in motion, or else we just end up being a bunch of people that agree on the same things, is we all are committed to a four-part strategy, which is the next slide. A people committed to gathering, connecting, serving, and engaging. And we believe as we're committed to jump in, each of us, with both feet into each of these areas of this strategy, as a community of believers, I believe something special can happen in and through this church. I believe we can experience a disciple-making movement, really like we've never seen before, of people following Christ and engaging everyday people to be fully restored and satisfied in Christ, if... If, and you can take the slide down, we'll get back to that next week. If, we'll put our yes on the table. As a community of believers, if once again, we will put our yes on the table because we've seen Jesus. He le- Our eyes are fixed on him this morning. He left his throne. He came down to save us. He came down on a mission to seek and save the lost. He came down to go after the, the, the unlovable, to sit with the broken, to sit with the outcast. He came down committed, pressing forward all the way to the end to make disciples, and He's called us to do the same. We've got too many churches in America who are satisfied with being a rotary club with a choir. We've got a lot of churches, and those close their doors every single year. We've got a lot of churches in America that produce a great, high-production quality show on a Sunday, but don't produce disciples. We have a lot of churches that bend and compromise and become like the culture in an effort to reach the culture. May we more than ever simply be a church committed to the mission. Committed to those values. All in on that strategy. Not distracted by trivial things that don't matter. Not letting our preferred things about how you do church to become ultimate things and distracting things. Not afraid to try new things as long as it's not unbiblical to try to reach people for Jesus. A church that doesn't get miffed about things that won't matter 150 years from now. A church living on mission as disciple makers with our yes on the table. I'm going to unpack some of this. In the next couple weeks, don't miss it. But this morning, I'm just asking you, will you put your yes on the table? Will you put your yes on the table? Maybe for some of you all, that's just dusting the lenses off and just saying, I needed that reminder. I need to remember who Jesus is. That's who we follow. He's given us a mission. Let's go after it. Maybe for some of you, it's the 3D thing. You've been in a church where a lot, the gospel's preached, a lot of the right missional language is used, but you've lacked a passion. And it's because you've gotten your eyes off of Jesus. And you need to, it's like the 3D glasses thing. You, it's blurry, and you need to pull the lenses back down and to see Jesus in his glory, but also in his grace. Or maybe this morning, you're here, and you need new sight altogether. Would you bow your head and close your eyes?